you, James. Appreciate it very much. All right, well, let's go ahead and open our Bibles up to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. We're going to get into uh, the thick of it this morning. If you remember, Daniel chapter 11 is uh, quite a complex chapter. Um, just to kind of get back up to date on where we are, um, can anybody give me an overview really quick, just in a nutshell, what are we talking about in chapter 11? If you remember chapter 10, the angel has come to Gabriel and um, has said, I'm going to give you some more revelation. This is additional revelation to what he has already given him back in chapter 7 and 8, also chapter 9. Anybody got any, uh, anything they want to add? What's chapter 11 about? Okay, all right, so we're dealing with prophecy, right? Front and center, very good. Anyone else? Okay, so we're, go ahead, Mark, what's that? King of, the king of the North, King of the South. Paula, thank you very much. So we're talking about the King of the North and King of the South. If you remember, we're talking about two dynasties that are at war with each other, okay? We've got the Seleucid Empire, which is the kingdom to the north. When we say to the north, to the north of who? Israel. Okay, that's your vantage point, right? The king of the north is north of Israel, which would be the Seleucid Empire. And the king of the south would be south of Israel, which is the Ptolemaic or Ptolemy, right? The Egyptian Empire down to the south. We mentioned this last Sunday. Israel's caught in between. And we are in what is called the intertestamental period. We're in between the testaments. From the end of the book of Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament book of Matthew, you have a period of time there of roughly what, Rick? Roughly around 400 years or so. And there's not a lot talked about in the Bible that covers this history, but a lot of people don't realize is that this history is laid out in advance in the book of Daniel. So it's there, it's just in prophetic form. Now, I told you last Sunday, Daniel chapter 9 is my favorite chapter in all of the Old Testament when it comes to prophecy because it deals with the first and the second coming of Christ. Chapter 11 is probably the most interesting of all the chapters in the Old Testament because of how detailed it is. How many of you realized last week how detailed chapter 11 was? The north would attack the south, the south would get mad and it attacked back. Then the south would attack and then the north would come down and attack again. And then there would be all this political intrigue going on between two. And then we saw that one example where they married the daughter of one to the, you know, to the son of the other. And they tried to make it work politically. And then she wasn't going to be second best. So she poisons the whole family. It was just all this political intrigue. You thought politics was bad today. Uh, back then, they were killing each other left and right to keep those positions of power. Now... Um, I, I told you modern scholars don't hold chapter 11 to be prophetic. They believe that, a lot of modern scholars do, that these things were written later, after the fact, after all these events. How do you feel about that? I don't agree with that, okay? Um, the reason why a lot of scholars have a hard time with that is because of how detailed it is and how it's fulfilled literally to the T. And modern day, more progressive liberal scholars look at that and they can't be real. They can't be real. Well, I kind of gave you a, a, a smoking gun, a silver bullet, if you will, to put a hole in that argument because of what? what? What was written in the Old Testament period of time that we have now in the New Testament? Septuagint, right? The Septuagint is the Old Testament. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. We have that in handwriting by at least 200 B.C., okay? Well, a lot of these events that are written in Daniel... 
were written in Greek in the Septuagint and considered biblical and prophetic scripture before the events ever even occurred. Does that make sense? Okay. That impressed both of you. Good. All right. Okay. So let's wrap up chapter 11. And we are talking about Antiochus III, who is known as Antiochus the Great. Now, was, what was great about him? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But in, in ancient times, they loved to take the title great because of what? All the great things that they've done, right? Well, he was a formidable foe. Uh, the, Ptol- the Ptolemy Empire during his reign couldn't do anything about him. He, his power expanded beyond a lot of the previous Seleucid Empire rulers. So therefore, he is called Antiochus the Great. He's going to have somebody take over after him who is not going to be great at all. And that's going to be Antiochus IV, the one that you and I are probably the most interested in in our studies, Antiochus Epiphanes, the madman, if you will. All right, pick up with me at verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. The beautiful land, some of your translations probably say the glorious land. What do you think that's talking about? That's Israel, okay? Uh, Daniel 8, 9, Jeremiah 3, 19. There's other scriptures we could look at, but the beautiful land, the glorious land, that's a picture of Israel. So in other words, it's another picture of how Israel's going to get caught in between all this mess. Okay? Verse 17. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom, and he'll make an alliance with the king of the south. So we're going to try this again. We're going to make an alliance. I got a political alliance. And he will give him a daughter in marriage. We've already tried this before. Didn't work out so good the first time. We're going to see how the second one works out. In order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Now, what do we know from history? Well, you probably have heard this name before. Uh, In 197 BC, Antiochus III sets out with a fleet to attack Cilicia and Korea. And uh, he wants to put um, them under Seleucid control. Right now, they're currently under Egyptian control. Um, he encounters this disastrous defeat by a brand new upstart on the Tiber River known as Rome. <laughs> Rome is starting to exert itself a little bit here. And uh, Antiochus, let's go ahead and read verse 17 uh, one more time. He will attack, he will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom. He'll make an alliance with the king of the south. He'll give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow his kingdom. So what does he do? Antiochus has a daughter, a young woman by the name of, drum roll, Cleopatra. Who's ever heard of Cleopatra before? Okay, everybody's heard of Cleopatra. Um, she is given into a political marriage, basically, with Ptolemy in 197 BC. He marries her at the ripe old age of 10. Now, I will tell you that that was a political marriage. He does not... Uh, consummate until much, much later. Um, But it's a political marriage. Why? What is he wanting to do? He's thinking that if I can create this political marriage and eventually what I'll do is I will use as a dowry all these other lands around the kingdom and eventually she'll sway back toward me and I'll come in and take the rest of the kingdom. That's the idea, right? Well, here's what happens. He gives uh, the daughter, 
He gives Syria, Phoenicia, and Judea as dowry, okay, for Cleopatra. Let's keep reading, verse 18. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but he will stumble and fall to be seen no more. So in 196, Antiochus turns toward the west in Greece, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He crosses the Hellespont. Uh, he seizes part of Thrace. Hannibal, uh, you've heard of Hannibal, right? Hannibal was an enemy of the Romans. Hannibal pipes up, apparently was a friend of Antiochus III, the great. He says, don't worry about the Romans, go attack them. Now, as a historian, I look back on that and I'm thinking, that's your right. It's your friend, right? Because he knows he's probably going to go in and get creamed and that's going to make it an opportunity for Hannibal. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, so in 191 BC, Antiochus is defeated by the Romans at the Battle of Thermopylae. I'm sure that several of you have probably heard of the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, in 190, uh, 190 BC, his army had 80,000 soldiers. He uh, was defeated, completely defeated in Smyrna by Lucius Scipio, the Roman commander. And it was at that point that um, the, the uh, Seleucid Empire was told, uh, under no uncertain terms, you will not cross this line. You cross this line, you come to the west, we will absolutely decimate you as a nation. And Antiochus III pretty much, to use colloquial terms, had to put his tail between his legs and go home <laughs> because he realized that he could not expand his empire any further. Okay? So what does he do? He takes it out on his kingdom. He's devastated. His army's gone. Um, his, his, all of his wealth has been plundered. And so historians tell us that, like the scripture says, he takes it out on the northeastern part of his kingdom. He plunders all the temples in his land on the way back home. Okay? And this sets the stage because he takes it out on the Jews. He hates the Jews so, so much. His son is about to take the reins, Antiochus IV. Antiochus Epiphanes, known as the madman. And he's going to pick up where his dad leaves off. Okay? Look at verse 20. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. And understand where this all begins. It begins with money. It begins with money. He has just suffered in a huge defeat by the Romans. All of his wealth is taken. So he wants all of it back. He doesn't want to give up that kind of lifestyle, does he? So he takes it out on the Jews. And he starts exacting these huge taxes against the Jews. So verse 20, his successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Um, I'm not going to take you through all the intrigue that happened, but um, basically everybody's killing everybody trying to because he gets old. It looks like he's about to die. The treasurer pipes up, thinks, I'm going to try, I'm going to give him my shot. <laughs> I'm going to, the treasurer tries to kill the emperor. He fails. They wind up killing him. There's all this killing going on back and forth. And finally, at the end of it all, Antiochus Epiphanes is crowned the king. He's not crowned through normal means. It's through intrigue. It's through political maneuvering, that type of stuff that's going on in the back end. Verse 21. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. And that's what we just mentioned a second ago, verse 22. Then an overwhelming armor, army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. 
probably talking about Onias III. Um, I don't know. I've studied this left and right, and, and this, this prince of the covenant will be destroyed is kind of ambiguous a little bit. But in 2 Maccabees chapter 4, verses 30 through 35, how many people have read Maccabees? I'm curious. Raise your hand. All one of you. All right. Good deal. Uh, well, Maccabees, if you want to know a little bit more history, First and 2 Maccabees is a commentary on this time period right here, okay, from a firsthand account of people that lived through it. But most likely that's what's being talked about here is that this uh, high priest Onias, he was high priest in 171 B.C., he was swept away at, at, this, um, at this time. Most likely that's what it's talking about. Verse 23. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses but only for a time. Now, unlike his fathers, Antiochus IV, he liked to rob the richest places. Uh, he, lo- he loved wealth. And uh, during this time, there's a power contest between Antiochus IV and his two nephews. I won't get into all that, but again, there's a lot of political movering. Let's look at verse 25 and keep moving. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. Here we go again. North, south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provision will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. Okay, so again, talking about um, uh, stuff that's going on between him and Cleopatra, basically after the death of Cleopatra, Ptolemy IV um, received some bad advice about Antiochus IV. And basically said, go, go get him if you want to. He's weak. And it turns out that bites him again, it bites him in the rear because that's not true. He's actually been gaining strength this whole time. Um, and it turns out that his daughter winds up is, is going to go against him. And she uh, decides that she loves Egypt and wants to stay there and doesn't want to give it back to good old dad up in Seleucia. Uh, Seleucia. So anyway, just a lot of stuff going on there. Look at verse 27. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an, end will, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. So Antiochus um, Philometer is his name down? He's a, he's what is his nephew? Okay, it's his nephew down in the south. He takes Philometer under his wing. So there's kind of a political alliance that happens there. Um, but this is where Antiochus really kind of takes a turn for the worse. And I don't know. I've tried to find it in history, but I can't th- find any other thing in history other than it's almost like demonic possession in a way. It, it never says that in the text. Never says it in history. But from this point forward, it's almost like a switch clicks inside of Antiochus' mind, and he has to go after the Jews and try to destroy the Jews. Okay? It's, it's a strange thing from a historical standpoint. Look at verse 29. Actually, look at verse 29. This actually may be the answer. At the appointed time. One of the things we have to remember is that these are appointed things. Appointed times. In other words, this is on God's timetable. He knew this was going to happen. He allowed it for his purposes. That very well may be the answer right there. 
Verse 29. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. And then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. So this is the second campaign against Egypt. Antiochus was less successful. Um, He failed to take Alexandria that last time. So he's coming back to try again. This time he encounters the Roman navy. That's it. After this, he's done. He doesn't ever try to venture back anymore. He doesn't want to go up against the Romans whatsoever. Um, The Roman fleet, uh, we actually know who the Roman emperor was that was commanding the fleet. His name was Caius Popilius. Um, He had sailed from Cyprus with his army. They they were there uh, solidifying their relationship with the Egyptians, by the way. Not too long after this, Egypt's going to come under the fold as Rome begins to expand. Um, But he returns Okay, so this is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He returns back to Syria. He's looking for someone to take it out on. And the Jews at this point forward are going to become the prime target, especially over the period of the next three and a half years. Okay, look at verse 31. Now this, we're going to be talking squarely about Antiochus here, Antiochus Epiphanes. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. That's important. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Right there, stop. Why is that phrase important? He will set up the abomination that causes desolation. You hear it again, okay? It's set up for you in Daniel 9 as a prophecy of what's to come, okay? You see it happen here historically, and this sets the precedence for what Jesus in Matthew 24 is going to refer to later on when he tells the Jews, hey, listen, all this is going to happen again. And let me give you a historical point that's going to be a picture you can look forward to. When you see the abomination of desolation, full stop, every Jew has, who has ever celebrated Hanukkah over the last 2,000 years can tell you what the abomination of desolation is. It's only us Christians who don't know, typically. But they would be able to tell you the story because every year on Hanukkah, that's what the story of the menorah is. It's the lighting of the menorah. It's the time when the lights were taken away from the Jewish people. They fought for three and a half years and they got the light back, okay? It's the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Dedication, when the temple was rededicated after these events that we're talking about right here. Jesus looks at the Jews. He says, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. And when you see X, Y, Z, these certain things, know that it's about to happen again, okay? So this is the abomination of desolation. It's talked about in 2 Maccabees chapter 5, verses 11 through 18. What did he do? We know from history that he erects inside the Holy of Holies an idol to Zeus. Could you imagine that? In the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was located, is standing an idol of Zeus. Yes. I don't know. I have never heard that. So you've heard that it was an idol of Zeus with his face? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's so great. Right. Yeah, this actually is his son. So this is Antiochus III, who was called the Great. He was the son. But he actually took on an even more illustrious name. He called himself Epiphanes, the illustrious one, the God one. Right? Yeah, Dad, he was great, but I'm a God. Can you believe this? This is exactly the hubris 
that's going on in this guy. Okay. Um, and by the way, Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, is it in the Bible in the New Testament? Yes, it is. John chapter 10, verse 22 makes mention of this, okay? All right. Um, verse 33. He did. He did. Those who, will, those who are wise will instruct many, though, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. All right. Um, let's go ahead and move on into chapter 12. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, please. When Antiochus goes back to Egypt the second time, <clears throat> he actually has himself crowned king of Egypt. Yeah. And, of course, the Egyptians are not happy about that. And when the Romans get wind of what's going on, they come to Egypt, like you say, the ships from the west show up. I forget the general's name. It seemed like it was Linnaeus, but I don't remember. But he confronts Antiochus on the beach. That's right. And he tells him, you can't do this. You're going to have to give this kingdom up and you're going to have to submit to the will of the Egyptian people. And he said, well, I'll think about it. Linnaeus whips out his sword, draws a circle around him, and tells him, that's fine, take all the time you want, but don't step out of that circle until you give me your answer. That's right. And that's what ticked him off so bad when he goes back up through Israel that uh, he's looking to take it out on somebody. He's humiliated. He's humiliated and he wants to humiliate somebody else. So he sets up the idol in the temple uh, of the Jews and basically wastes their uh, worship. I mean, he just he just... You know, does his own thing mm -hmm. with no regard for their wishes at all. And that plants a seed that will grow from that point on to where Israel has basically said never again. That's it. And when they get their temple rebuilt and rededicated, they're, they're done. They're, they're not going to let anybody else do that mm -hmm. to them. So that's where we stand even today. You know, they're, they're still looking at that saying never again. Mm-hmm. The I remember when we were uh, on, let's see, Masada at the very top, and the several of you have been to Masada, and and this is uh, they'll the, one of the things the Jews do is Masada was the place where they took their last stand. If you remember, in 70 A.D. the Romans came in, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the city completely, um, but there was a last holdout. I think this it occurred around 72 A.D., about two years later. And until this day, every, every new year when they had a new crop of, of recruits come through in the, in the military, they take them all up there for their dedication ceremony. And basically, it's a story of the, the last bastion of Jewish holdout against the Romans in 72 AD. And they were willing to even give their own lives rather than be killed by the Romans. The story is told that, that they were up on top of this, this fortress, which is just way up this high plateau, this mountain. 
and you can't get to it. And so the Romans spent like a couple of years using slave labor to build a ramp, a dirt ramp, all the way to the top of this thing. Well, by the time they got to the top, every man, woman, and child had thrown themselves off the cliff of juice. Uh, to, did, I, did I retell the story correctly for those of you who have been there? They had drawn lots. Okay. That's right, a thousand. That's right. Mm -hmm. So the lot fell to a certain number, and they killed all the wives, children, maidens, and whatnot until just those were left, and then they chose lots again. Right. To see who would kill them. So when the Romans finally broke the wall there at the bottom, they were all dead during the human beings. Well, so the reason why I bring that story up is because Ami, who was our guide at the time, uh, ex-military, everybody's ex-military over there, they're all ex-military, um, he told the story of how Israel has what's called the Samson option. And we were, of course, a bunch of American tourists, and so what's the Samson option? He says, we have nukes pointed at all of our enemies right now. And he said, if they come against me, we nuke every one of them. So basically it's the idea of Samson pulling down the pillars at the end, right? But never again, never again is the motto. Never again is the motto. Yes, that's right. Okay, well, we are at the very last chapter, and, and what I'm going to do is from verse 36 on, let's see, from verse 36 of chapter 11 down through about verse 45, that section of Scripture is where the language, like we've said before, really begins to trail off, if you will. Uh, yes, it applies to the, the historical Antiochus Epiphanes, but the things that happens from here, the language begins to shift, the things that he does, it, you'll notice as we get into it next week, it begins to speak forward into the future, if you will, into what the second Antiochus Epiphanes is going to wind up doing at the very end of the age. So next week, here's what we're going to get into. You're going to see a world ruler. You're going to see a world religion. You're going to see a world war. You're going to see a time of great tribulation for Israel. This is all chapter 12. You're going to see a deliverance at the end of that tribulation. You're going to see the resurrection at the judgment time. A lot of people don't realize they say, is the resurrection in the Old Testament? Yes, it is. It's in the book of Daniel chapter 12. You're going to see the great time of the resurrection, the righteous, the wicked. The wicked will, will go into eternal judgment, and the righteous will be with the Lord forevermore. That's a great way to end the book of Daniel. Amen? All right, we'll talk about that next week. God bless you.